Hi, you're listening to Avenue Insights. Any views expressed in this podcast are based on information available at the time and are subject to change without notice. Okay, so thanks everyone for tuning into this quarter's podcast. Um, Bill and I thought we would take a, a moment here and go through a few of the key topics that we think um, were discussed in, in the quarterly letter that we, we think uh, everyone would find most interesting. And uh, I guess the biggest thing that we talked about uh, just to start it off in this letter was really touching on the inflation debate that uh, is being you know talked about all throughout uh, the markets and in financial media. Um, but before we get into it, I guess, Bill, I'll throw it to you and um, have you highlight why inflation is so important uh, from an investor perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as we're coming out of the pandemic right now and the economy is coming back and we still have shortages, uh, we just have this initial spike in inflation. And this is what the quarterly letter we highlight that as our first topic and sort of uh, Canadian and US inflation sort of getting up four or 5% range. And it looks like a pretty shocking number compared to what we're used to. And then the point here is really what, like, why does this matter so much? And actually, inflation is is sets the tone for the bond market. What is that level of interest rates? And we've gotten used to a very low level of interest rates, in which case, does the bond market have to react to inflation? And are interest rates now going to be significantly higher? Why that's important is because the bond market really underpins you know, all the asset prices. So the bond market has an asset class, but then here's the level that houses trade at. Here's the level that, which means that mortgages trade at, which means that you know hard assets and then inevitably stocks trade at. And this this simple thing, what is the market multiple, which has historically been about 15, 16 times earnings, but now we're pushing where the stock market is trading roughly 20 times earnings, which is called the market multiple. And when interest rates are low, you're willing to pay a higher price in the stock market. But now if we're looking at, oh, if inflation is coming back and bonds trade higher, well, will the market multiple be lower? So it, it really is a central question and whether it's always in the background, but right now it's just very poignant because we have this inflation. And so now, Brian, I'll throw it back to you because you've uh, it's not just the arguments, but you've got some good slides on this. And I, I think the way in the letter we've tried to uh, pull this apart, which is, yes, we think there's inflation, but ironically, in, in goods inflation, we want to separate what is goods, you know, stuff you buy inflation versus asset price inflation and sort of tease those two things apart. But I'll throw it back to you and really touch. And you've got some great slides on on sort of what is goods inflation and uh, and an argument for for where we see that type of inflation going. I think on that uh, on that topic, I think the most interesting thing when you break out the good side of the inflation piece. And so just as a background, you know, within inflation, there is a component that is goods and then there's a component that services and the last decade you really had services as the as the main uh, components that were driving inflation or, or at least keeping inflation stable. And we had you know, a decade of, of goods disinflation. So lower inflation for things like you know, home furnishings or electronics or things that you actually buy that are, are tangible physical goods. Um, but what was unique about the fiscal support last year, right after the pandemic started, was you had um, fiscal support basically become uh, income replacement and uh, income supplement in a way that we haven't seen it really in a generation. And so 
it was the first time in a recession we actually had income and spending go up, but it's because it was so much fiscal support from governments in, in both Canada and the US. And so we were able to sustain consumption last year at a much higher level than we would have based on just ongoing economic activity in 2019. So, you know, that in itself is a sort of a fascinating case study about what was unique about the COVID recession. And we've touched on this in recent podcasts. But the other thing then to add on to that is because of all the lockdowns last year, you had significant curtailment of global shipping lanes and supply chains, uh, you know, Asia, Europe, North America, you know, there were issues everywhere in terms of getting goods to that next level of production that then can be created uh, or turned into a consumable good or durable good. And so not only did you have the elevated demand from all this fiscal support, but you also had limited supply because of, of issues around you know, social distancing or factories that were shut down or you're not able to get enough uh, shipping uh, you know, boats or planes, all of these you know, cargo issues that are still even working their way out right now. So you had higher consumption that you otherwise would have had and you had lower supply of goods than you otherwise would have had. So it's driving you know, uh, sort of eye-popping year-over-year numbers in consumable goods inflation uh, and that's, you know, really what's driving a lot of the headline inflation numbers right now. Um, the other thing it did is that in the restocking phase, you had, uh, you know, certain parts of the U.S. manufacturing sector just, you know, going very strong to try to meet as much supply as possible because international goods were not able to go into the North American market uh, as quickly as as they would have without the pandemic. So. I think a lot of this is going to take time to work itself out. Um, and I, I think the the argument for why inflation can be stickier and which means it's less likely to go down um, is that these supply chains, you can't just turn them off and on. Um, you know, they take time and it takes time for uh, production to get ramped back up again. Um, and so I think the you know the the question for the rest of the year is really, um, at what pace do we see supply chains start to normalize? Um, and is there supply that can keep continue to come back online from international production, like let's say in Asia? Um, and I think if if so, then it gives you an argument about why um, you know the net, the inflation numbers that we're seeing right now are not likely to last. Um, and specifically looking at what the bond market has been doing is it feels like the bond market is now sniffing out. Um, almost peak inflation. Um, and so it, we'll have to see if that actually happens. The other argument is that if you look at what house prices have done, you know, in Canada and the US, really going off the charts, we're now, you know, a year on where we're probably likely to see rent inflation um, to a point we haven't seen in a while. And rent inflation is actually the, the largest component of inflation. So there's an argument now where rent inflation is going to be sticky. So you might have goods inflation come down, but services inflation come back up. So a, a lot of this is kind of evolving on the go. But I think going back to what you, you started with, Bill, is really um, the bond market is is taking cues that at the, at this moment, you know, inflation is not going to last at this level with interest rates now having come down. Um, but that is, you know, that is the the goods and services inflation. The whole whole other side of the argument oh, is. Oh, so maybe, maybe I'll touch on one question there because I know yeah, it's sure. going to come up. And, sure. And this is what I get asked all the time. So, okay, if the price is up, and then I would frame it in terms of, okay, my this is my cost of building my house or building my my factory, and it's up, and and now that they're so high, and I don't have any extra money, well, then I just don't build anything. 
So this is where you sort of get an economic, your prices are high and there's no extra cash in the system. And you just sort of go, oh, but actually wages are gonna go up. So you get this, this spiral uh, because goods prices go up, but then I gotta pay people you know, more or they, they, and then they force the prices up. And then that was the 1970s cycle of wages and goods inflation. And I think you, you have some thoughts on, uh, on where we actually are in terms of the, the way labor wage inflation as we come out of the pandemic. Yeah, I think, I mean, th that's also one of the arguments for this, you know, people are making about why inflation is going to be stickier because you're now going to have, you know, now that prices are up, that means that companies and businesses are going to have to pay people more to work um, because the cost of living has gone up. So, and in, in principle, that is, you know, that makes sense. The other side of that, I think the challenging argument about that is in a lot of ways, you know, I think, um, you know, people think of profits as it relates to the stock market as, as sort of what drives the stock market, but then there's profits in the actual real economy. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the data we, we follow, you're not seeing a bounce back in uh, profits in the outside economy that's not a public, you know, public in the public markets. And so the problem now is that if you have businesses or companies that don't even have the profits to be able to raise wages, then the problem is, you know, it's hard to get an argument about how wage inflation is going to be very sticky because, you know, a great example would be, you know, the restaurant industry that, you know, is short, uh, short workers right now and they can't get people back to work. Um, and it's, yeah, it's busy right now in the summertime, but, um, you know, restaurant profit margins are only so high to be able to afford, you know, certain wages. And so I think the next shoe to fall will be very interesting to track is, do you have businesses actually have to cut back on either services or production because they actually can't afford to pay higher wages? Because there's, there's not the profit margins in the economy to actually support that. So that's, and that's a, you know, a very stagflationary kind of outcome where prices have gone up. So the cost of living has gone up, but businesses don't actually have the profits to be able to raise wages. So then they actually restrict output. So you're stuck with high prices, but lower economic activity, which is kind of a, you're getting the worst of both worlds. Um, and so I think, in, you know, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks just in, in the office of, you know, there's the theoretical sort of economic history of all of these things. And in a lot of ways, we're really living through sort of a real life economics classroom because we're seeing these things happen in real time in a way that I, you know, you certainly haven't seen in a generation. And, you know, the other side of the coin is just saying, which is, you know, at this point unknowable, but how, how long is the added government support going to stay in place? You know, specifically in the U.S., there's a lot of states that are starting to roll back the extra unemployment benefits. But we might now come in, uh, you know, Democrats might have another massive fiscal package. So is there some kind of income support in that? You know, who knows? Um, in Canada, you know, a lot, some of that's being phased out. But, um, you know, my, my, I love the saying, you know, there's nothing more permanent than a, um, you know, part-time or short-term government program. So a lot of these things don't, aren't, probably aren't going away fully. Um, and at the end of the day, with, with government support at the level it is at, the government is competing with the real economy for, for labor. Because people are getting income supplement not to work and are, are much more hesitant to go back to work. And if the government is, is sort of you know, competing with the real economy for labor, it's not really an optimal situation to drive you know, any kind of real productive uh, economic uh, 
uh, activity. And so I think what's what's very interesting about this whole debate is that there's the inflation happening right now, and there's the clear goods inflation and service in, is inflation happening. But then there's the forward-looking 12 months of what is the outlook for uh, both government intervention, what is the outlook for real economic activity, and can the can the real economy actually support higher wages given that we're in an inflationary environment? And that's, I think, going to be the most fascinating to, thing to watch. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll hit that because I'll just summarize that because this is the big debate, you know, just discussion that we've had in the office over the last couple of weeks is that there's two economies and to summarize what you said, which I think is a fascinating point, is there's a number of high profit margin companies that can certainly push prices through, but there's another whole half of the economy that just doesn't make enough money. There's no profit to suddenly increase everybody's wage. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Okay, yeah. so at great yeah. personal risk, because we, we did this in the uh, in the quarterly letter and just sort of moved from the goods, so that headline CPI inflation, and then move it to our asset inflation, where we still think that there's, it's, it's an extraordinary time with low interest rates, how much you want to pay for something because your borrowing costs are so low. We've always said, maybe I'll even frame this point because this is from a few years ago. If, when a house is $500,000 and you can say, okay, my interest rates are going to be six, 7%, well, maybe the house is $100,000 more, maybe it's $100,000 less, depending on market and sentiment in that day, in, in this point in time. But when a house is $4 million, the extraordinary thing is, are you going to pay six or are you going to pay three? That's a $2 million swing, but you just don't know because interest rates are so low, somebody may feel on that day to pay $6 million. And so it, as asset prices go higher, they're also more volatile. And so just to frame that, and so why this, this is, we try to explain this, and I don't want to go into, into too much detail here to get lost in it, um, but so far, all this government stimulus that you've also paid to, and, it, and it's amazing that it's still ongoing. In Canada, it's still ongoing. And when it stops at some point, uh, there hasn't been money created. This is our point. It's still just been borrowed. We believe there's so much money been borrowed that it's not going to get paid back, but that's not how it works at the, at the, the point. And what we did in the quarterly letter, again, was try to explain how the if it's not printed, it's not really in your hands yet. And it, it sort of gets stuck in the mechanics of the banking system. The banks aren't lending it out to here's a company that wants to build a new factory, hire new people, you know, build all the resources. That type of lending is not happening. This trillions of dollars is stuck in the financial system, but it has to go somewhere. And so it goes into financial assets. And when you're looking at the stock market, that is a financial asset. And again, because if, if historically bond yields were higher, a lot of it would live in the bond market, but then bond markets are so low. And these are the slides I'll, I'll let you refer to, Brian. But this is our whole point is that because interest rates are so low, the money has to live somewhere. And this is extraordinary slides that you put together for the quarterly letter of just showing just how much money is coming into financial assets. Yeah, I think the I think the the chart that we had looked at, I think it's just it, it, the inflows into equities are is really off the charts. And so I think the the number specifically was that current inflows into the uh, U.S. This is the U.S. equity markets this year so far are running at a rate higher than the last 20 years combined. So it you know 20 years combined of equity inflows jammed into you know now uh, seven months into the year if we if we continue at this pace into the end of the year. And so you can't understate sort of how much money is flowing into equities 
and I think a lot of this too is really, uh, it speaks to investors risk on sentiment. And so if you look at margin debt as well, you know, that's now at record highs. You have a lot of the, you know, retail participation in, in a way that we haven't seen in a generation. You have options activity that we haven't seen ever. Um, you have the crypto thing happening. And so there is this huge speculative uh, environment going on right now. And I think the, you know, the, the sort of broader longer term risk that we, you know, we keep looking at and can't, can't shake is that your economic activity is only supporting so much actual true business value. And then you have the Federal Reserve with low interest rates stimulating people to want to speculate on assets, which then is driving everything up. I mean, the other chart that we we added to the quarterly letter that was really, I think, telling is if you look at foreign ownership of U.S. equities, it's just it's off the charts. So you not only have people domestically in the U.S. or in Canada buying domestic equities, you have you know international investors in Asia, in you know Middle East, in Europe. All of that money is flowing into U.S. equities, driving things up higher, and so. The, the problem with these environments is that they can continue far longer than you think, and they can continue far longer than is comfortable. But you can't look at, you know, one of the measures we like, can't look at market cap to GDP in the U.S. and not just, you know, your eyeballs are popping off the page. We're now 30% higher than where it was in 1999. And I think all of these things in hindsight, you know, once we get to whatever, you know, endpoint the market takes and however long it takes, I think in hindsight, um, you know, how ridiculous this environment is will be very clear. But while you're in it, it's just fascinating how you can see people kind of justify why it can keep going up or why it's fair value or whatever, you know, all these things. But the problem goes back to originally with interest rates really low and people willing to speculate, there's really no limit to how high things can go up, whether it's real estate, whether it's, um, you know, stocks or, or equities. And I think, you know, not to go on a total tangent here, but your comment the other day of just, you know, if you look at all these geographies in Canada, these small towns where real estate's up 30 or 40 percent over one year, I mean, that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to have assets go up this high this fast because it, it creates a destabilizing effect in the long term because then you got you have credit and margin all added on top of these elevated asset prices. And these are where things get very dangerous when you start applying leverage and credit to elevated asset prices in a very speculative environment. So yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean it's coming off either. Like this is the, the, the yeah. term we used in, in the quarterly letter was, you know, there's nothing normal about this. Interest rates are art it's not to be a conspiracy theorist or anything on this. It's just sort of they but interest rates are being artificially suppressed because of central bank activity. And you know it's going to create other issues in the asset price we've talked about that for a number of years now but now you're watching it real time and you're saying this is none of this is normal but i think our phrase we're using is that you better get used to it because this is the new normal and i would say from you know from your comments it's not that we're hopping off you know hopping off the train and you know and sitting on the side of the tracks waiting for the next train to come along we're, we're actually we believe you still have to stay in the market but more than ever and this is the phrase is just it really matters what we own and it really matters how much we pay for it because again there isn't really an alternative we can't just go and sit it out somewhere because even though those asset prices are high it doesn't mean they're coming off yeah with with our interest rate view i think uh, if yeah and so no, it's, I, it's, I come back like we can we can pick our different asset classes if i throw it back to you what what is our expectation for interest rates 
as you say, running through that whole uh, the rundown on goods inflation and asset inflation, what would you say is our one two year expectation for interest rates? Yeah, I think they're gonna I think they're gonna remain low. I I, I think the, the 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 bigger elephant in the room that is not being addressed at the policy level anywhere, whether it's government or the central bank, the biggest elephant in the room across the board in the world, you know, Canada and the US, government and total debt levels are far too high. And the problem is the economic activity that we're generating now with all of this debt is not able to sustain everything as we're going here without very low interest rates. So the problem is you are in a situation where because of the large debt trap that we're in, policymakers feel like they need to keep interest rates low and they feel like they need to keep doing more stimulus to keep the economy going. The problem is you make this system more fragile every time you go. And so there's almost no way out of this but to keep interest rates low. Um, the problem then is you also create wealth inequality because you're driving up asset prices. So then you have people say, well, this is not fair because um, you know, look at asset owners uh, who are benefiting where, well, the real economy um, you know, isn't benefiting from central bank policy, and I, which I totally agree with. The problem is you know, the, the, the tough medicine out of this is going to be uh, a level of tough medicine that you, we haven't seen in a generation. And I don't think politically we're at the point willing to make that decision to, to want the tough medicine. But I would have the view, I mean, and it, you know, at some point it will come. How long? There's no way of knowing. And we're not, we don't try to pretend to know. But it forces investors to really think about what they own and why. And I totally agree with you. You can't sit in cash and not be invested in anything because this game can continue for a very long time. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we have the freedom of being unencumbered and not benchmark constrained in what we do. So we can really go in and try to find value in places that other people uh, in the investment industry can't because they're constrained by, um, you know, what they're doing. And so we think yeah, there's I'd a say lot in the, uh, in the business, in this highlight, in just we've talked yeah. so far, we've talked about asset class, classes and saying, and the stock market isn't just one thing. We sort of break down stock market into a number of economic components, but then really bringing it back, and I think always in our strategies, bring it back to that business. And I, yeah. in the, what are those underlying businesses? Are they core to the economy? Can we park our money in it, in this business, and have it safe, you know, sort of safeguarded and compounded in this actual structure? Instead of saying, here, we're just exposing ourselves to an asset class called the stock market. It's We're actually taking our savings and distributing it into really high-quality, profitable companies where we can avoid some of the excesses that we actually see. Yeah, I think the other thing too is there's a lot of, you know, this is a kind of environment where there's a lot of strategies and and managers and investors can thrive, but it's it's really the ones that are are willing to acknowledge that we're in a bit of a speculative mania, and you just have to treat it as such. And and I think where people run a you know run the risk of the greatest danger is just not accepting or acknowledging what's going on and how nothing is normal as you as you said but you still have to play the game. And the game is to keep invested, to allocate capital, to find opportunities. Um, and, and I think that that's, I think that's really the pathway through for investors is you have, to, you have to accept the game that you're playing and you just have to you know, adjust as you're going, but really be paying attention to what's going on because you know, justifying this as everything's normal is, is just, I think you kind of have your head in the sand.
And I think what, what we've talked about a lot, and certainly it's in the last 12 months, I would say six months, but the last six months have gone by so fast. It's just the speed with which things change. And even individual asset classes where we're looking at infrastructure, real estate, when, when the move comes, it just happens very fast. And, and yeah. stocks can be re-rated in a, in a number of days you know, or weeks, but it's not something we're finding that themes or trends aren't playing out over six months to nine months. They seem to be playing out in a number of weeks. Once something is established, money moves very, very quickly. Yeah, I think all of everything is being accelerated at a faster and faster rate. And uh, I think that is you know, that is definitely something that I think you can expect to continue. Um, and it's, you know, once asset prices have run this far, you know, the volatility the whole way up becomes larger and larger, larger magnitude. And, um, you know, I think it's going to continue to, you know, be a very, very unique and um, interesting environment as we work through not just all of the, you know, inflation stuff, um, but also really, you know, on the good side, but also the asset inflation. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the Fed, which, you know, we don't have to go too deep into this, but you now have, you know, the Federal Reserve that is now in a, you know, in a very challenging position because you're kind of underwriting this speculative environment. But at the same time, you have to keep ask, uh, interest rates low to make the government debt affordable, you know, and it's almost you don't even know what they're going to do. Really. Well, I think we'll leave it on that. How about we say that in, and in summary, even though we're in this remarkable situation, it's it's our belief that we still have to stay invested. But more than ever, it matters what we own, what are that underlying core businesses that we have and that it really matters what you pay for them in terms of to have stability under uh, under the portfolio. I couldn't have said it any better myself. So why don't we wrap it up on that and then we'll look forward uh, to the next uh, quarterly podcast. Great. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find us on avenueinvestment.com where you can learn more about the topics discussed today at our blog or subscribe for updates to our content. You can also follow us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.